In this video, I'm following up on a thread from an earlier video about animist exchange and economy. In this last video uh, that I made quite a long time ago, I spoke more generally about animist exchange economy, but in this video here I will add some uh, words specifically on the Nordic tradition. I'll put a link to this video up here somewhere, uh, and I suggest you actually take a look at the, the uh, first video. That outlines some more general thoughts about animist exchange. Pre-Christian Nordic culture was a situation where gift giving and exchange played a central role. And this is rather normal in animist culture. And it's a very important feature in uh, Northern Europe, in fact. As it is almost universally the case among humans, Nordic law insisted that a gift had to be reciprocated, Lona, right? When you accept a gift, you simultaneously accept the obligation to give something back. That basic human system of like, we invite you for dinner, and then you're probably expected to invite us for dinner. The, the law of the gift. But Nordic peoples actually took this reciprocity to a degree that could even seem a bit extreme from our contemporary perspective. Uh, where, in fact, you only acquire the right to the gift by the actual counter-gift. So it's not just an obligation to reciprocate, it's actually, you only actually get the gift when you have reciprocated in some twisted way. That's right, you know, the cultural demand for reciprocity was so literal that the gift is not really yours before you have paid for it. A person could take back a gift that he or she had given if it had not been reciprocated. You see, this model for gift giving seems to lean towards what we would actually call trade. Giving and receiving is not completely distinct from buying and selling, actually exchanging, trading, there's a bit of a gray zone area in between there. Uh, these things are not as distinguished as they are from our perspective. It's a middle thing, kind of. This also means that receiving a gift is not always desirable. A bit like you don't always want to buy some, something that someone might want, to, want you to buy or want to sell you, right? But it's not just that the value exchange that's, at stake, that's at, at stake here. More importantly, receiving a gift puts you into a very concrete relation of debt and obligation to reciprocate. And it's that relation that is, that's the point, or that's important. To receive a gift, for instance, from a chieftain or a king or an earl could bind you into allegiance to that uh, figure of power by uh, basically 
you, you will now be bound to repay with loyalty and service, perhaps as a warrior, something like that. This again means that you can maintain your individual independence by reciprocating or by avoiding receiving the gift in the first place, right? Because your allegiance is bound by being uh, by the gift, gift exchange. That allegiance would not necessarily be a bad thing, right? So let's not fall into these kind of idiotic boy scouty fantasies about the Norse who practice some sort of Game of Thronesy northernness that kind of reeks of contemporary ideas of staunch individualist self-reliance, we don't kneel, and these kind of things. That, that kind of stuff basically is not descriptive. People are in relations, and they're in relations of subservience and, uh, and reciprocity. Loyalty in all kinds of ways to each other, and in webs of these kind of relations, also in the Norse world. I think it would be more uh, a more precise analogy, uh, which is a proverb that I once came across from uh, West Africa, where there was a group of people who basically said that it is a poor man who does not owe anybody anything. Point being that debt is an expression of reciprocity. It is mutual connection, uh, connectedness, and if you don't owe anything, then you are poor in relation, and that's being poor for real. I totally love that. You see some of that same, uh, as I was talking about in the other video on animist, uh, animist economy, and that is that giving and exchanging is fundamentally a way, a medium for creating relation. Exchange is a medium for social connectivity between persons. Now, what happens in Nordic culture seems akin to what you can see, for instance, among the Northwest Pacific uh, indigenous groups in America, where gift giving can almost take an aggressive form. Giving a gift is a way of perhaps even patronizing someone or manifesting your superior power, almost, in the potlatch ceremony or in the great halls where, uh, where uh, earls and lords are giving out uh, valuable stuff. And this is, of course, also why people will sometimes refuse to or evade to receive gifts, even refusing uh, in spite of the fact that refusal to receive gifts could move the relation into manifest enmity, right? This emphasizes the seriousness of the gift. A gift is not something that is kind of outside obligation. It is very, almost a physical bond making between the people exchanging. This strong reciprocity is uh, found also in later times. And though it's often difficult to speculate with continuities and all that stuff, uh, it's worth noting that the Swedish scholar Karin Senefeldt, uh, she studied alcohol culture in early modern Sweden uh, in the political system, and she notes how it was illegal for a nobleman to give a peasant wine. How could that be illegal? Not because it would do something unfortunate to them or make them alcoholics or something like that, but because a gift of an expensive alcohol was impossible to repay for a peasant and that counted as social coercion, which was illegal, right? You see how extremely serious 
the uh, business really the gift is. But if we go all the way back into the pre-Christian age, then we find a lot of this very strong reciprocity. Reciprocity as a natural law that really binds people together. Uh, we find it expressed in, in the words of Odin uh, in the Havamal, um, where there are these directions for how to maintain positive, uh, respectful, kind relations. With gifts of weapons and clothings, friends should gladden one another. Mutual givers and receivers remain friends the longest. Or we're told that to his friend a man should be a friend and repay gifts with gifts. Laughter men should accept with laughter, but return deceptions with lies. You see, gifting and, and uh, receiving becomes a metaphor for all human relation and reciprocity. And I think this is probably somewhere at the root of the importance of gifts, not only in Nordic culture, but perhaps universally. Laughing together or lying to one another can be understood as gifts that we are giving each other. So the metaphor of gift giving as a model for human behavior continues in, in other verses and uh, in the end of the Hovamol, uh, with the more mystical parts of the poem, we are told to even be cautious about the power of reciprocity. In uh, Carolyn Larrington's translation that I'm leaning on but not following completely, it says, better not to pray than to sacrifice too much, much. A gift always calls for another. Better not dispatched than completely erased. This thunder, which is named for Odin, carved for all peoples as he rose up and came back. So you see, this references Odin's sinking into the other world to take up mystical knowledge, and even in the dealings with this mystical knowledge, these gift reciprocity counts, and it is important to not give too much. People must repay gifts with gifts. Those who, those, those who give and give back, they stay friends the longest. Gifts are at the foundation of social relating, and gifts always look towards a counter-gift. So take care to not give too much, reciprocity can go weird and compromise relations. In the Viking Age, the exchange relations, particularly between chieftains and warriors, is often praised in poetry. Feuds often arise from the problems that come from gift-giving that has failed somehow. Reciprocity breaks down or falls off the rails, right? Settling disputes are often ended in this way. A typical formulation could be they exchanged gifts and parted in friendship. Gift giving is also highly ritualized and embedded in the cosmological world. Um, and of course, offerings play a major role in, in animist religiosity as offerings are basically gifts for the supernatural world or for other than humans that create in the same way, create a bond to those others. Alliances with the gods are based on gift giving.
Sacrificing is a situation of its own. It's a super multi-layered multi way of giving, uh, particularly when there's a giving of life, something is being killed somehow. There are those who believe, actually, that many of those hordes of gold and silver that are found from pre-Christian Scandinavia are an expression of this. Denmark um, is an area that's a, it's a little bigger than Massachusetts. It's a rather small country, smaller than Maine. <laughs> uh, but the amount of gold that's found in Denmark from the pre-Christian uh, period, uh, that is just what people have found, amounts to 50 kilos of gold in hordes. And I don't know how to translate this into value that can be understood today if compared to the Iron Age. It just appears to me to be remarkable that these people placed so much gold in the earth uh, that the part of it that we have found today is actually 50 kilos. Some scholars actually believe that a remarkable increase in gold finds in the Iron Age show that people are reacting to the Fimbul winter, that catastrophic 6th century climatic cooling that hit Scandinavia in the Iron Age, i.e. people give in order to re-establish those basic bonds of reciprocity with their landscapes, with their world, that have evidently been ruptured when summer and harvest suddenly decides to stay away for a couple of years because of climate change. Now, today we're in a different culture uh, space. We are different today. We don't live in a gift exchange culture. We don't see, for instance, the natural world as depending on our exchange relationship with it. We consumer, consumers. We consume, but we don't give. Even those of us who are critical of consumerism still live our lives on the condition of consumerism and participate in it. But I think we should strive towards gift giving as an animist uh, model for exchange. Our immediate contexts, uh, in, in our immediate contexts, this would not imply these extreme mutual uh, obligations that you see, for instance, in the Viking Age. Like if I throw a couple of Nordic animism stickers in, in the envelope of, of a book that I'm sending you, <laughs> then that does not imply allegiance and these kind of things, because our exchanges of value simply aren't like that. It isn't treacherous to receive a gift uh, or that you uh, own the person's obligation when you give something. That level of binding uh, in the gift uh, sh should, al uh, should also be seen as a function uh, of the value that's actually exchanged. Imagine what incredibly life-changing ch value it was for a medieval warrior to be granted knighthood. You're no longer a peasant with a pike, but a knight with a lance, right? Um, and an estate. Imagine the concrete value of a professionally crafted sword in the Viking Age that a king might give to a, uh, a warrior. If we gave each other stuff like a piece of downtown real estate, a grant for a child's education, or monetary value equaling the salary of two years full-time payment, like seriously life-defining uh, exchanges of large-scale value, then that is perhaps the kind of exchange that was there in, in uh, medieval exchange economy. And we're not doing that. And imagine imagining that we are doing that, that would just be LARPing, because 
we operate mainly <clears throat> on the conditions of capitalism and consumerism. And uh, if we did that, if we actually exchanged at that level, that would probably become very, very serious for us too. We have the problem in our age that value has become incredibly abstract. If you live in a society where exchanging means exchanging stuff like you can eat or use, like a basket of eggs for a well-made knife or a piece of clothing for a service like fixing a roof, then there's a then there's a limit this is to, to what, how much social inequality that can actually be there. When you abstract life value into little gold nuggets, nuggets, then you can have a king with a large chest of nuggets in it, right? When you abstract life value further into paper notes, then you can have a millionaire. If you abstract it into a bank that holds the whole thing for you, then perhaps they can be billionaires. And if you made it make it into ethereal, non-existing numbers created out of binary codes inside a data system somewhere in the cloud, then wealth inequality grows to those obscene levels that, uh, that we're seeing today. If someone forced Elon Musk to translate his entire net worth into sheep and cattle, you know, then he couldn't be an Elon Musk anymore. Power and social control often rides or applies abstractions, for instance, like abstractions of value in order to be able to uh, centralize. You, see, you see, also see the same in religion. Moving animism into abstracts make it, makes it easier for states to control the webs of relation that move, for instance, in a population. You see what I'm saying? If everybody live inscribed in complex webs of allegiance to their local transformative ecosystems and to each other, you know, humans and other than humans, then you can move such a population towards a greater degree of social control and coherence if you convince them to worship an abstract transcendent God who only touched the world of humans once. And that happened millennia ago. But there's a priesthood who holds a very tight monopoly on that relation or non-relation that's uh, administered in that religious idiom, right? And that is the reason that Christianity is established in, in, in Northern Europe, perhaps all of Europe, in close connection with the, with the formation of states. Abstraction is really useful for uh, centralizing and, and controlling. So my suggestion is, of course, to move in the opposite direction from abstract value towards concrete value. I think somebody should create online systems to facilitate direct exchanges of life value outside basically the conventional monetary system. If we could move exchange back in the direction of knives and baskets of eggs, you know, I paint your house and you give me a load of pig, pig meat, you know, if we did that, then I think uh, we would be doing a very healthy thing to the world. We would probably create exchange circuits of greater economic and social resilience, and we would undermine the, um, the system of Wall Street cartels of banking gangsters that leech on normal people like vampires. 
Did I get political there? <coughs> anyway, I didn't mean to do that. So my suggestion is to start working with gift giving, both symbolic gifts, gifts that may have a personal history, gifts of religious value, uh, not necessarily to play at being medieval people, but to kindle those exchange patterns and exchange as something that serves relation. I think we should refine those ways of giving and receiving that ha have more relating in them. In, uh, in my last video on uh, animist uh, economy and, and exchange, I think I perhaps hatched things out a little bit too uh, radically in that one. I spoke about animist exchange as having relation as the purpose where consumerist exchange only has the value of the exchange as a purpose. But I reflected on that a little bit and that's a little bit too simplistic. Value also carries animacy and animist exchanges are also made for people to be able to feed their kids. Like in, in literal terms, consuming. Eating is a necessity which is of course central to exchange culture, but there is still something about relation in the exchange forms. Relation building has a much more central place in what motivates animist exchanges. Like if you look at the Melanesian Kula exchange ring, where people were sailing around between Pacific Islands and exchanging pretty bracelets and stuff like that, or if you look at the Native American potlatch system, or if you look at biking exchange systems where the relation is so urgently present in the gift that it makes sense to want to avoid the gift altogether because the relation it carries is a relation that you might not be interested in engaging, basically. Anyway, I think that we need to work with our way of exchanging in ways that magnates our stuff, that gives it making, that enriches it, empower it, empowers it with animacy of our relation. And when we do that, uh, we should, I think we should remember who we got the item from. So the item is magnated with the story of its road between us. And, uh, and that in itself creates relation. I'm trying myself to, to give and receive gifts a little bit in my little operation that tries to create a voice for Nordic animism. It happens regularly, for instance, that people want to help. And I receive this, thankfully, um, and then I try to give a little bit back, just a, at least some tokens of reciprocity, uh, t-shirts and stuff like that a little bit, uh, signs of appreciation, of friendship. But I'm still not really finished understanding exactly how we can best operationalize uh, and harness the power of gift giving into our day. But one important aspect in order to reaching a, an understanding is to be playful about it. Uh, and maybe some of you have uh, suggestions, then put them in the comments sec section here. Thinking with this, how to recover reciprocity culture might actually be, I think, part of the key to save the world, basically, or something approximately on that scale. Creating sound exchange systems is an extremely important issue. Thanks for listening and see you around.